Kate. Good morning, Jacqueline. We're in a new location. We are. This is so exciting, especially just because of the way I've aired my grievances on here about it all. Kate had a big move. She was, to be fair, you were really responsible for the move of five uh, fully grown adults. I was chief move officer. Yeah. It was crazy. (laughs) I mean, literally all of it. The organization, the audiovisual setup, the interior design. It was a lot but so worth it how fun is this it's so fun it's giving and i already texted you this when you sent me the photo but it's giving Gigi hadid's new york city home right Right. it was in new york yeah new york it's very colorful it's just fun it's a lot of fun can't help but love it can't help it how was your morning it was good i worked out i took one of the hardest moxie classes i've uh think i've ever taken today uh with julian Really tough, full body push day. So lots of shoulders, which I love. Um, and then the sled pull, which I thought was interesting, but <laughs> on push day, right? <laughs> but I think the point is it's quad, quad heavy. Yeah. yeah, that's so fun. But yeah, how was your morning? My morning was good. I've been here since just seven a.m. Mm-hmm. Just doing my thing, right? With all of the people that show up at seven a.m. I also got to see your dad today. I had an appointment for you the Botox did. study. That's so special. So Dave was in his element, thriving. Thriving. We love an ophthalmic surgeon. Yeah, we do. So what are you going to teach me today, Jack? Okay, so I'm really excited. I'm teaching you. Today we're, last time we did this, we each had one like quote unquote negative thing to talk about or something that like wasn't good for you that maybe we shouldn't be doing so much. And then one positive. And today I have two positives. I love that. And my first one is very near and dear to both of our hearts. And that is group fitness. Yes. Group fitness, as most people listening uh, know, is a pretty recent phenomenon. I would say like 80s, like jazzercise step type classes was really the beginning, other than like competitive sports when you're playing on a team. Um, group fitness kind of like brought that sort of team group atmosphere and exercise combination to the masses. Right. And also to adults because most people like grow up playing sports. Um, and then once they get to early adulthood, adulthood, we don't really have that outlet anymore. Obviously now there's like more co-ed leagues and like fun, like beach city sports and those kinds of things. Um, but generally speaking, when it comes to exercise, it like historically has been thought of something you do on your own. And you and I are big lovers of group fitness. Can't live without it. Can't live without it. And it turns out there are a lot of scientific benefits to group fitness that you may not know. So we're going to talk about those. Lay today. it on us. So I actually think that for our next couple of duo episodes with just the two of us, I'm going to talk about the benefits of exercise because there's this like assumption, obviously, when you think about exercise, what kind of benefits do you think of? Physical. Right. Weight loss, muscle growth, mobility, et cetera. And those are all wonderful byproducts of a regular, regular exercise regimen. But there are emotional benefits, psychological benefits, neurological benefits, social benefits, aging benefits, longevity, health span benefits. I mean, really incredible. The list goes on. And so our focus um, today is going to be on the benefits for social connectedness 
And then also the benefits that exercising in social settings or in groups has on your actual exercise routine. So um, just to like start to go over this a little bit. I think most people, when they think about the neurotransmitter or the chemical that is released when they exercise, most people think of the same thing. What would your, what would you say? Endorphins. Endorphins. Thank you. You're you're welcome. (laughs) Thank you. So most people think endorphins, right? And that is true. You release more endorphins when you exercise, um, when you're exerting yourself in different ways, we release more endorphins and that's like a happy, feel good chemical that reduces pain, reduces anxiety, increases feelings of joy and happiness and all of that. So endorphins are amazing. But other things that are stimulated through exercise are dopamine. And dopamine is often the chemical that we think of when we think about motivation or drive or like eagerness to engage in any activity, engage in life in general or engage in a specific activity. So dopamine is like your motivator. Um, So dopamine, endorphins, endocannabinoids. And then when we talk about exercising in groups or in social settings, oxytocin. So oxytocin is the brain chemical that is often um, connected to feelings of love, togetherness, uh, connection, community. Like when you hug somebody, when you kiss somebody, when you hold someone's hand, you're spending time with a loved one. Oxytocin is the chemical that is often produced. And so all of those are produced at heightened levels when we're exercising. So a couple of studies that I found particularly interesting when it came to group fitness. Um, One that our Lord and Savior, Andrew Huberman, talked about. My king. (laughs) (laughs) Our king. Um, So he basically explained the relationship between oxytocin and dopamine. So he was talking specifically about increasing people's motivation for exercise. So like not only wanting to exercise consistently, but exercising harder while you're engaging in physical fitness. And so... The, what he was explaining is that oxytocin and dopamine have a positive relationship. So oxytocin is central to stimulating the dopamine pathways. So when you're exercising and engaging in social interaction at the same time, it triggers increases in oxytocin. And as a result, the pathways to increase the stimulation of dopamine are opened and deepened. So there's a positive correlation between engaging socially because then you produce more oxytocin and when you produce more oxytocin the pathways in your brain to increase dopamine are widened and deepened so your motivation increases when you're exercising with other people and I find that interesting because a lot of people when we talk like specifically in our group classes about like partner switches we were just talking about this the other day essentially like one other person is responsible for the amount of time you're spending doing any given exercise. So let's say like you have to do a hundred yard push on the treadmill. We had to do that in class today. So if you're signed up, have so much fun. Shoot. It was so hard. hundred yards and really heavy resistance. I was winded. It was crazy. What's the other exercise? Rest. Oh, thank God. (laughs) And and when I first read it, like whenever there's a rest, I like it when it's like a heavy, when we have like a sumo deadlift or whatever, and the other one's rest, because then you can like really go heavy. But with this one, I was like, I'm going to get so bored. God, no. I was like hoping Tyler was going to go slower. Yeah, you're savoring every second. (sighs) Yeah. So anyway, with things like that, but partner switch where like you're relying on somebody else and someone else is relying on you, you think that it's social pressure, right? Like our assumption is like, oh, like I feel like I have to 
like perform right exactly and so the thing that's crazy to me is like yes it might be social pressure like it might be the fact that we don't want to look stupid to somebody else or like weak to somebody else but it also very well may be this chemical reaction that's happening in our brain because we're interacting with another person and engaging with them in a positive way we're releasing more oxytocin because we're releasing more oxytocin we're creating more dopamine and when you have more dopamine you're more motivated and eager and engaged in whatever activity you're doing so there have been multiple studies that like prove this in a social way so uh, in the journal of social sciences they found that people that were exercising with another person and this was cycling specifically the results indicated that participants that were partnered with somebody that they perceived to be at a higher fit condition exercised harder with that person than someone that they perceived to be lower which I thought was really interesting I mean I feel that in class all the time it, it pushes you. It really does. We say it too. Uh, well, yeah, that's why I like working out with you. Especially because I feel like we're of similar strength levels. Right. Yeah. It makes you feel like you can do more if they can do it also. Right. You know? Yeah, exactly. Great. So essentially, because our brain produces so many of these happy chemicals at the same time at such an enhanced rate, it essentially leaves us more open to the creation of social bonds and it sensitizes our brains to pleasure. So essentially it's like enhancing our capacity to experience pleasure and simultaneously it's improving our resilience to stress and pain and all of these other things. Um, so a lot of these chemicals, endocannabinoids specifically, um, increase our ability to socialize. Essentially, they reduce our anxiety, they make us happier, more joyful, and more likely to engage in social interaction, which is so amazing and I feel like makes so much sense because even when you think about a group fitness class, like at the beginning, when everyone's like standing around and like... It's like a little awkward. Yeah, it's like kind of awkward and like the instructor is trying to like get everybody excited and like, right. you know, interacting and telling each other to give people high fives. <laughs> and like you really see this like change throughout the class as people are like in the freaking thick of it. Like you're in the trenches in those classes. You man. are. Blood, sweat and tears. Crazy in there. And as time goes on you see and it's just like so interesting to see the science of it because like we witness it every day but to know that like okay wow like these people's brains are quite literally changing over these 55 minutes they're becoming more interested in engaging with one another and this one I thought was particularly interesting it focused specifically on the reciprocal relationship between social bonds and exercise. So they hypothesized that moderate intensity group exercise leads to cooperative social bonds among participants that uh, cues to group, group bondedness um, and leads to a psychosocial environment where exercise ability is enhanced. So essentially they're saying not only does exercise increase the likelihood and our ability to connect with others, but connecting with others while exercising also enhances our exercise. Wild. Isn't that so fun and cool? That is amazing. It's so fun. And like we know, all, like we don't, I obviously didn't know the neural, like our neuroplasticity is literally like molding over the 55 minutes, but I did know all of the benefits because I just feel them. Right. I mean, I don't know the last time I did a workout on my own. Ugh. It's always either with you or in a group class. Right. 
but I I just know I I don't think it would ever be the same. Right. But I even when I work out by myself, it's still in a setting where there's so many other people there's around people. and I'm engaging and interacting. And it's just cool to know that like that is a tool that you have to like if you're somebody that lacks motivation when it comes to exercise and that was another study that I read about was adherence like adhering to a consistent exercise regimen over time and the likelihood that you do so when you're doing it in groups and other people are not necessarily relying on you being there but the expectation is there that adherence increases so when people say like have a workout buddy or have some level of accountability, like it really does make a big difference in our consistency. And I feel like with how busy everybody's lives are and how easy it is to make excuses, it's good to set up as many accountability measures and motivation measures as possible without it feeling like, I think it like accountability buddy, I don't like love that term because it's like, okay, but if I don't want to work out, I'm not going to work out. And right. like, you, you don't get to tell me that I have to. Right. It's like the natural desire and motivation to want to work out because your friends are there. Yeah, and you, you get to. Right. You get to hang out with them in that way. And it's so cool. It really is. It always fills my social cup, too. Like, if I do a group class, I'm like, oh, I'm good for the day. Like, Seriously, I think that's why I don't go out. I don't, I don't feel like the same drive to do so simply because I've already seen... 50 plus people and interacted like so heavily with them yeah it I don't have that like yearn to like see and interact with more people I totally agree and it's amazing it I is really it so like much. I have really no desire exactly like especially once in a blue spin. moon spin is like a party like oh that like fills my clubbing cup <laughs> that's oh my god that's literally what Carter said she was like I, I looked about like I just went to a dance party seriously it's so fun it checks so, so many boxes. So it's just really amazing. And essentially, the, the whole point of this is like, so all of this is coming from our muscles, essentially, which I think is fascinating. Our muscles are essentially endocrine organs that secrete hormones directly into our bloodstream that affect every single system of our body. And when you're exercising with people, all of that is enhanced. So people talk about like dopamine hits and that's actually like kind of a misnomer um, because you your body's like creating and sustaining dopamine throughout your day. But if you want to increase the happy chemicals in your body, number one, exercise. Number two, exercise with people because it's going to enhance all of that. 100%. Oh, this was fascinating. They did a study in particular. So obviously one of the many, many, many things that we lost during the pandemic and shutdown of everything was group fitness. But they did a study on people sharing their physical activity on engaged social networks. And so during isolation, they found that sharing physical activity experiences was positively associated with feelings of social connectedness, with a positive self-presentation, positive self-reflection, and positive feedback with oneself. So aside from like the science of it, even being able to engage with people virtually, obviously like I prefer group fitness in person and everything else, but they've found that even being able to share that with people that are engaged and like care about your health journey and fitness journey and everything else positively impacts your mental health. 100% it does. Like, does that mean virtual classes online where they're watching an instructor or is that re referencing I share my stats on Apple Watch with you? 
it was referencing sharing yeah sharing your stats oh that's others. so interesting or like a photo like a sweaty selfie which is funny because like people make fun of it right they're like oh you didn't work out if you didn't post it on instagram or whatever right. which like okay i get it like it depends why you're posting right if you're sure. like trying to like brag or i, d- I don't right. know why people are posting but like it it if it if it positively impacts your mental health post freaking 20 who times cares? a day man <laughs> who cares no one that's why we have all the decals at moxie yeah every opportunity to post so yeah it's just um it's a fun little thing that we do and it's good for our brains and our psychology look at us bettering ourselves with group fitness we love group fitness okay and then the last one that i'm going to talk about really really quickly is they did a study on the impact of group exercise on feelings of trust and trustworthiness. So they did this study where people were playing essentially an investment game um, and they were evaluating how much people trusted others. And they had them do different types of activities with the other people involved beforehand. And they did it like days before, immediately before, tested a bunch of different things. They had them like do group activities like eating out. They had them exercising together. They had them like going on walks together. They had them play a similar game, a similar investment game together. And they found that feelings of trust and trustworthiness of the other people in these groups was the highest when they had engaged in some kind of physical exercise as a group beforehand. Wow. So it makes you more trusting as a person? Of the people that you exercise with. That's so interesting. Isn't that fascinating? I'm trying to think of who I exercise with the most. If I trust them. I hope so. Like the randoms. Gerardo. Well, I mean, (laughs) obviously. Right. I mean, like the people that, you know, how there's just some people who are like, how are we always in the same class? Right. Yeah. There's people like that. But you would probably, like if you saw them on the street and needed something, I don't know. For sure. Hey, I need you. Like you're establishing some (laughs) level of trust with the other people that you're exercising with. That's so cool. It's really Our brains are fascinating. It is fascinating. And there's like the different theories on why this is. And the one that I found, and this is like absolutely not solidified. This is like an anthropological theory. Um, is that because physical, intense physical exertion, historically thousands and thousands of years ago, hunter-gatherers, was typically done when you were going out and hunting for food and then bringing it back to your community, is the, the theory says that like because there was that feeling of social connectedness as a result of that physical exertion, so like going out and hunting or like foraging in the forest or whatever and then you come back and contribute to your community the result was this feeling of social connectedness of contributing to something greater than yourself etc and so evolutionarily it makes sense that we would have to trust them yeah that we have these feelings of connection with others when exerting ourselves physically right like the people you're chasing the woolly mammoth and the saber-toothed tiger is right behind you. You gotta trust your squad you really to not leave you behind. You too. We're in this together. Well, it always comes back to evolution. Yeah, every time. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, I want to shed some light on something that's really important to me, and I think something that can help aid a lot of different sectors of our lives that people maybe aren't giving enough credit to, like their recovery, their overall like mental health, and just like our bodily function. And that's sleep, which 
it's kind of a big topic. Obviously, there's a million different factors that bleed into it. But there's a couple that I'm going to touch on today. But before I do that, I just want to kind of get a baseline understanding of what governs our sleep. So the number one thing that governs our sleep is a chemical called adenosine. And this is the chemical that builds up in our brains the longer that we're awake. So say you're awake for 10 to 15 hours, adenosine is going to be much higher in your body than it would be if you were awake for one to two hours. It can be compared to hunger. So it's very low if you're well fed and it's very high if you're hungry. Is that a good analogy? That is so good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. So the higher the adenosine, the higher your hunger for sleep is. Caffeine, for most people, wakes them up. It's something that they drink to make them feel alert. But adenosine and caffeine don't go hand in hand. Caffeine acts as an adenosine antagonist. So the caffeine binds to the adenosine receptor and therefore the adenosine cannot park in the spot it wants to park in. So it's an analogy, basically the caffeine, if it's a full empty parking lot, the caffeine's parked in every slot that the adenosine wants to be parked in. Oh no. You can imagine how this affects us. It's like a Sprouts parking lot. (laughs) (laughs) It's a mess in there. Right. It's a mess in there. So the caffeine basically blocks your brain's sleepy signals, which is great if you're exhausted and you need to power through something, but it's not great for our body's like natural hormone production cycles. So the caffeine from tea and coffee can increase our cortisol levels. And the two most important hormones for sleep are cortisol and melatonin, Mm -hmm. which I'm sure you've heard enough about both of those to understand that yeah they're highly related to our sleep and our quality of sleep this is the first time hearing about adenosine though adenosine's kind of the silent killer because i think if you asked majority of people on the street like what is the chemical that makes you tired right they wouldn't know i would guess melatonin but it's oh, not i have a whole spiel on melatonin coming up mm, great you're gonna you're gonna be shook So the caffeine from drinking coffee or tea can increase your cortisol levels. But drinking coffee when your cortisol levels are at its peak may further increase the levels of this hormone, which disrupts your body's natural cortisol and melatonin production. And our bodies naturally produce cortisol in the morning, and it normally peaks about two two hours after waking up. And then they gradually, of course, decline throughout the day as we approach our bedtimes. That's fascinating. So with caffeine in the morning, most people wake up, start their day with a cup of coffee. Of course. I'm sure you've done that a handful of times. (laughs) Yeah, a few. (laughs) But by doing so and starting our days with caffeine, we cause our cortisol levels to rise way quicker and peak way sooner, which results in in dropping way sooner. Hence our 2 p.m. slumps. Mm, you're a major afternoon slumper. (laughs) I slump so hard and only on the days where I wake up and start my day with a cup of coffee. Okay. Okay. So what do we do? So if we follow this cycle over time, our bodies begin to not only reduce natural cortisol production, but they also build a tolerance to the caffeine 
which consequently creates smaller and smaller rises in cortisol. So our bodies aren't naturally producing that cortisol and adrenaline rush in the mornings and would naturally become technically sleepier people and more like drowsy people. Let that sink in really quick. So there's things we can do, obviously, to offset this. Andrew Huberman. (laughs) (laughs) Again, our Lord and Savior has a wonderful podcast episode on this. It's called Master Your Sleep and Be More Alert When Awake. So I recently did implement this in my life. I wait at least an hour and a half. I try 90 minutes. Sometimes I, like, I've had crazy days where I wait four hours in the morning. That's great. Especially 5.45 days. Like, if I'm up really, really early, I won't have my first cup till, like, nine. That's impressive. Just something about me. Well, and I'm sure the exercise, like, exercising that early in the morning results in increases in cortisol as well yeah and that like you were saying produces a ton of extra happy hormones that you kind of like feel that high off of right you're not like oh I'm so sleepy right so you're able to push it a little bit farther that makes sense we are naturally inclined to rise with the sun and fall you know as the sun goes down but it's getting harder now because obviously people's work schedules are fluctuating and we wake up, we turn on our artificial lights and when the sun sets, we also turn on our artificial lights. So we're not as connected to the earth and the natural cycle as we once were. So let's dig into the brain a bit. The retina are the only two pieces of the human brain that reside outside of your skull. How fascinating. Dude, eyes are crazy. I would love... We got to get your dad on the we podcast. We got to get my dad on the podcast. He loves a retina, little retina discussion. Eyes are crazy. They're your brain. The only piece of it that literally Sticking resides outside. out... It is exposed to everything. The whole world. It's... Yeah. Okay. Tell me about the retina. So <laughs> when light comes in and your retina are exposed to it, there's a group of retinal ganglion cells... And they communicate with that clock, quotes, inside of us that resides. Guess where the clock is? I don't know. It's crazy. Tell me. (laughs) At the top of the roof of your mouth. And it's called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. The clock? Let me say this one more time. (laughs) I can't get enough of it. Our internal bodily clock resides on the top of the roof of our mouths. Like that I can put my tongue on. The roof of my mouth right there. You're scraping her all around. Yeah. So our eyes send signals there when light is exposed. Whoa. Wild, right? And light, of course, is essential to timing the cortisol and melatonin rhythm properly. There's a doctor, Dr. Jamie Zeitzer, and he's a Stanford researcher, And he found it 50 times less effective to view sunlight through a window or car windshield than it is to view it with no sunglass protection at all. Interesting. So I know a lot of people say like, oh, I do wake up and I put my shades up right away. Right. Or I wake up, I drive to work 30 minutes. I'm exposing myself to this light. My clock is getting set and it's, I'm fine. I'm in the clear. Unfortunately, life's always harder than you think it is. (laughs) (laughs) That's the truth about her. And literally half, 50 times less effective. Wow. So 
if you can, and I know everyone starts work at different times, but exposing yourself to that early morning sunlight. And I know some people don't wake up at 530 or six, whenever the sun rises. I don't most days, but even the early hours of morning are so important. Mm -hmm. It will ensure better sleep. It's just biology. That's the way it works. It's because our bodies are so efficient. They're so efficient. And we make life so difficult on them. Yeah. Our bodies respond best to light to trigger these natural hormone production rhythms, circadian rhythms. And that will just ensure better quality of sleep. Do you delay your coffee intake? Um, I've always kind of pushed it until the point in the day that I need it. Like I don't have a set time or anything. However, on the days that I teach early morning Mm. classes, I try to like have one as I'm doing that. But generally speaking, um, on a day when I'm not teaching in the morning, yeah, I don't drink it until I feel a desperate need for it. Oh, great. Yeah. Then you're already one step ahead of the masses. Yeah, but I sleep with my TV on. Yeah, I don't know that about you. And I know a lot of people who have like sleep troubles, trouble sleeping, insomnia, rely heavily on melatonin supplementation. And I really, I feel the same way as I did about bursting the Celsius bubble as I do about (laughs) bursting this bubble because I know so many people that yeah they got their little gummies on their bedside. It's a addiction at this point justin uses it no way i know i know i know i I didn't know that yeah well i'm pretty sure it's ben greenfields too thankfully (laughs) oh that shocks me that he doesn't know about this double whammy i'm sure he does yeah but like when you're so desperate if if you're struggling with sleep that much and you're so desperate for sleep like you're willing you'll do anything yeah i know and i there's a couple red flags to it. And of course, probably most of the people listening to this podcast have already hit puberty and are actually <laughs> decades beyond puberty. But there's been studies and Andrew Huberman um, has them all listed out on his podcast. But it, the supplementation of melatonin has been linked to suppressing the onset of puberty, which is pretty scary. Oh my gosh, that is so yes. Just a little spooky. That was one of the craziest things I've ever heard. And you know what's Tell also people more. well, you know what's just something to think about is, especially female hormone supplementation. I can't speak on the male hormones, but they are very hard to access. To get birth control pills, to get estrogen supplements, to get progesterone supplements, nine times out of ten, you need a pharmaceutical prescription. Right? Why because is melatonin is sold over the counter? so readily available in little gummies that's practically marketed to kids that haven't hit puberty yet. Right. It's extremely alarming, especially from what it's been linked to. It has literally delayed the onset of puberty. (laughs) And it's just a hormone sitting on the shelves of our Rite Aids and CVSs. Yeah. And if you've already gone through puberty, (laughs) apart from that, it can impact other hormone systems in the body Mm -hmm. like anything. Hormones are just, they like alert our body of what it needs or lacks. So yes, it will help you fall asleep fast, but it's also not been proven to help you stay asleep. Or get high quality sleep. All it does is just put you to sleep Mm -hmm. a little bit quicker. And also melatonin that's purchased at the pharmacy is completely unregulated. 
The amount of melatonin has been tested and can range anywhere from 15% of what's listed on the bottle to 400 times more than what's listed on the bottle. It is completely unregulated. And that's also within one bottle of melatonin. Well, that's what I've always kind of thought about edibles. Like even edibles from these like major companies that are making them now. I'm like, how do you know there's five milligrams in this gummy? Like, how do you know it didn't get distributed differently across multiple gummies? The gummies are quite, quite crazy to me. Quite crazy. So yes, melatonin, like you were saying, some people are just so desperate and it's a more of a need than a want for them. But I think, I don't know. I can't prescribe you anything. Give a shot delaying your caffeine. Give a shot waking up and exposing your retina to the natural sunlight of the morning and just see how you're feeling or how your sleep's affected by that. Right. Before you supplement something. With a hormone. Try other things. I just feel like melatonin is not marketed as what it is. It's literally a hormone. It's like your dress. Do your research, kids. Well, on that note, I'm going to be talking about a supplement (laughs) that might be good for you. I just found this to be really fascinating and I don't have any like recommendations around it because I personally don't use this regularly. I've dabbled in it because Justin uses it and I've used his um, for like a couple weeks at a time, but never consistently. And that is creatine. When I say creatine... What do you think of, Kate? Big, bulky meatheads. Exactly. From the gym. Exactly. So creatine historically has been used for muscle growth. And there is a whole host of research on um, creatine's ability to enhance muscle growth and strength and endurance and all of these other things. But they have recently, in the last few years, been studying creatine's impact on our brains. And as you guys are figuring out, Kate and I are really fascinated by the human brain. It is mind-boggling in there. So I just really found this to be interesting. So for those that are not familiar with creatine, creatine is an amino acid that is necessary for creating ATP, which you likely remember ATP from like your freshman biology class. It's the body's on-demand source of energy. So it's our ability. It's where we pull all of our energy from. So Some creatine is naturally generated in our liver and kidneys, but we don't produce enough naturally um, for our day-to-day lives. That said, creatine is found naturally in animal products. So in meat, in dairy, in other animal byproducts, Um, but it is susceptible to degradation during the cooking process. So like we've talked about oxidation and all of that with seed oils and everything else. Essentially, like when you cook things, you do change their makeup and the impact that they have on your body. And so even though creatine is readily available in a lot of animal products, it is degraded through the cooking process. And then if you're vegetarian or vegan, then you're likely not getting the right amount of creatine for your day to day. Unlike creatine in foods, creatine monohydrate in supplement form is not damaged by the cooking process. And it has been shown in hundreds and hundreds of studies to improve creatine, creatine stores in the body. But we're not going to talk about that today, uh, necessarily like the impact on muscle growth. We're going to talk about the brain. So 
about 95% of creatine is stored in your muscles, but the other 5% is inside of your brain, which is just really interesting. The brain is among the highest consumers of energy in our entire body. So our muscles rest for big portions of the day. Like when we're sleeping, when we're not contracting them, when we're sedentary, our muscles are resting. After our muscles, the brain is among the highest consumers of energy in the entire body. And when you think about that, muscles throughout our day have a lot of time to rest. So when we're sleeping, when we're not contracting them, when we're sedentary, our muscles have the opportunity to rest. However, our brain really only doesn't even rest during sleep. It's still very much active. So even though the brain only takes up 2% of our body weight, it takes up about 20% of our calorie intake, which is just fascinating that our brains, like brain activity takes up so much caloric intake that's actually so and i did not know the percentages before you just said them but i don't know why this is the first memory that comes to mind but like when you used to take standardized tests <laughs> like very long like act sats yeah how hungry were you after those i was starving <laughs> i don't remember <laughs> longer for me but it's so true like when I do I cannot move a single muscle but if I'm doing a lot of brain powered work yeah I'm I get hungry it is exhausting and that's what I remember with like standardized testing even younger like elementary school they'd be like eat a good good breakfast (laughs) (laughs) eat a good breakfast (laughs) so so cool anyway um okay So even though most of the body's total creatine is found in our skeletal muscle, the brain is also very metabolically active tissue and accounts for about 20% of our energy consumption. And so creatine can be, they're starting to find very powerful for brain activity. So there have been a lot of studies that they've done recently. And the two that I found most interesting, the first one was regarding short-term memory and then reasoning in people. So they found that the benefit for um, for both aging and stressed individuals that creatine improves their recall. So they did it like with numbers, names, information, whatever. Improved their short-term recall and also improved their speed of reasoning ability. So like their ability to like work through critical thinking. Got to take creatine fascinating that's so cool so interesting and then this other one that i found really interesting was it improved people's recovery after oxygen limitation so i think the average person knows that when you're not getting oxygen to your brain that has detrimental impacts in the very very long term and so that tends to happen with like stroke patients even heart attack patients like when they're not able to get oxygen to their brain um the effects can be very very long lasting so They did this study where participants were deprived of oxygen to the brain, mimicking emergency conditions, and individuals who had supplemented with creatine for one week prior had restored cognitive performance more readily than the placebo group. That's crazy. Isn't that interesting? Wow. That really is fascinating. Our brains are a crazy place. They're really insane, and creatine might be helpful. So, like, with this, like, new wave of nootropics and, like, Everybody, not everybody, a lot of people's like interest in neurohacking and like improving brain health and function and everything else. Why are you laughing? Everyone's interested. Everybody's <laughs> interested in neurohacking. And I know that. Every no. single person. But like there's, you know, there's a lot of amazing supplements for it. And like the market for nootropics is like really expanding. However, 
creatine is a pretty easy supplement to get your hands on and also helps with muscle growth and endurance and improving your workouts. So it's really a two for one, or at least they're figuring out that it's a two for one. So I've been on the fence about creatine for a while. Um, like I've said, I've dabbled in it just like when it's sitting next to our coffee machine because Justin takes it every day. But now that I know it's good for my brain, maybe I'll hop on the creatine train. I think I'll do the same. Great. Maybe we can do it together. Our cognitive functioning is going to be out of this These episodes are about to be crazy. (laughs) It's just you guys. Wait, we're talking a million miles a minute. (laughs) Well, speaking of maybe implementing a new habit for us too, the creatine, I wanted to talk about, it's a bit broader, but it's a format to change your habits that you guys might be familiar with the book Atomic Habits by James Clear, that the author has said can be maybe more effective for us as humans. So I'm going to speak on the layers of behavior change. And we speak about it a lot on this podcast, creating new routines, implementing new habits, sticking to a, cr- to a routine. So I was about to say sticking to creatine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to stick to creatine. <laughs> sticking to your routine. It sounds simple, but they're very, very hard. And like the two of us I can speak on, it's not been like a week where we just decided like, we're going to work out every day. We're going to eat healthy. We're going to delay our caffeine intake. We're going to start taking creatine. We don't drink sucralose. Like, no, that didn't happen in a week. And it takes a long time to build those foundational values and habits. But what James Clear speaks about in the certain section of the book, he describes the layers of behavior change like an onion. So the outermost layer is outcomes. And those are essentially the results that you're searching. Could be losing weight, graduating school, winning a championship, starting a podcast. It's just the result that you're seeking. The second layer, process. This is the actual change in your habits and systems. So implementing a new routine at the gym, decluttering your desk for better workflow, developing a meditation practice. It's the things that you have to do to achieve the outcome. The innermost layer, identity, and that's changing your beliefs. So your worldview, your self-image, your judgments about others and yourself, that's kind of who you are inside, obviously. It's your identity. And the approach he suggests is creating identity-based habits opposed to outcome-based habits. So outcome-based habits focus on what you want to achieve, but identity-based habits focus on who you want to become. And it makes sense, right? You, you could say, I want to squat 300 pounds. I don't. I don't think I could do that. <laughs> you could do anything, Kate. Stick with me here. I want to squat 300 pounds. That's your outcome. Okay, that's a bit of a daunting feat. You could say, in a, like opposition to that, I want to become an athlete. Mm-hmm. I want to be an athlete. Right. And I joke about it all the time. And Gerardo was actually laughing when I was writing this up last night with him. I always call myself an athlete, an elite power athlete, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, well, it's not not true. It's not not true. Like you do. I would say you're an elite power athlete. Yeah. Like we exercise in an elite powerful way. Mm-hmm. It's who we are. 
like when you wake up in the morning, I don't think like I'm going to go work out because I want to lose five pounds or I want to wear a different size pant or I want to prevent a heart attack in the future. I wake up and I work out because that's who I am. Exactly. We are people that prioritize our health. Exactly. Above most things. Mm -hmm. So he said in his book in this exact like little section of layers of behavior change. He said, imagine two people resisting a cigarette. When offered a smoke, the first person says, no thanks, I'm trying to quit. It sounds like responsible response, but this person still believes they're a smoker who is trying to be something else. They're hoping their behavior will change while carrying around the same beliefs. The second person declines by saying, no thanks, I'm not a smoker. It's a small difference, but this statement signals a shift in identity. Smoking was part of their former life, not their current one. That is inspiring. How inspiring is that? And I think a lot of the times, especially when you're starting out with whatever, like it doesn't have to be health related. It can be you're applying for grad school or you're trying to start a podcast. It's super daunting because you think of all this stuff that you have to say no to and the things you need to start implementing. But instead say, yeah, I'm a podcaster Mm -hmm. or yeah, I'm an athlete. It's just what I do now. Right. It kind of, it takes the guessing out of it and the mind games of, oh, like, I don't know if I should be doing that. Like, no, it's just who you are. And he just said, essentially, that it's one thing to say you're a person that wants something, and it's very different to say you're a person who is someone. And in making that swap, it's a super simple swap, and it's honestly just more internal dialogue than it is someone asking you because how often does someone ask you a statement where you have to respond with I am an athlete right (laughs) right it's mostly internal but in making that swap you can build identity-based habits that become who you are and in doing that they become naturally part of your routine that just sticks with you throughout life and I thought that was very inspiring that's super inspiring I love that and I'm trying to think of habits that I want to develop that have been tough for me that I can shift my thinking around. Honestly, this is like silly, I guess. I don't know. Nothing silly. Um, Is using my phone in the morning and at night, really. Like, I don't want to be someone that is addicted to my phone. Yeah. Yeah. You could just say, no, I don't. I don't go on my phone. I don't use that. (laughs) Or just like, I mean, I guess it goes back to like, I'm somebody that prioritizes my health. Like I know that that is not good for so many things. My circadian rhythm, my stress levels, my sense of self, all of it, all of it. But yeah, I guess I can shift that versus like, I'm trying not to go on my phone in the morning. I can say, I don't use my phone in the morning. Yeah, exactly. The minute you take like, I'm trying or like, I'm trying. Yeah, I'm changing. I'm doing this. I'm reducing. Yeah. I, yeah, it's I am. It's just what you're doing, and it's just a part of you now. It's just another thing tacked onto your identity. I'm not addicted to my phone. I'm not addicted to my phone. I do not drink coffee for the first two hours of the day. No, you don't. That's mine. So I hope you guys maybe take a little piece of that with you. I thought it was super neat and it's a super simple little mindset shift that I think could be really useful. I agree. I don't know. I read that smoker passage and I was like, wow, that's pretty moving. All right. I learned a lot today. I did too. I hope we taught them something. I think we did. Well, guys, I guess tune in next week. 
we'll see you next week follow us on instagram also rate this podcast oh please do if you listen on spotify or on apple you can just give us a little review a rating and a review and share it with your friends have a great day bye